0: Well, it's really, really good to be here this morning, and uh, I've, I love going to TCT churches, but this church particularly, I've gotten to know your pastors over the last three or four years, and a number of your elders have come to the retreat, and they're just some of my favorite people to hang out with and spend time with. And then the last two days, just being here at the church, uh, meeting different people has been so encouraging, and I'm so just seeing you and worshiping with you this morning, and seeing what God is doing here in, in Bowling Green is just I'm just really, really encouraged and really thankful. And uh, I will say this. So it's real cool because I got to bring my family on this trip. And so over the last week, we've been staying in Smith's Grove and uh, just uh, touring around a little bit, seeing the, the caves and other things. And they say that San Diego is supposed to have like the best zoo in the world. And, uh, and my wife always makes me get her yearly passes, which, which is a lot. let me just say something. I took her to Kentucky Down Under. And uh, no, I'm not going to lie, she left that place after she was just crying when she was petting the kangaroos and a little joey was sticking his head out. And she just said, this is my favorite zoo in the whole world. (laughs) And so I will say this, I will never, you saved me so much. Like just the rest of my life, I'll never get another yearly pass to San Diego. And when she wants to see a zoo, we will just come to say, we'll come back here to Bowling Green and I'll come visit you guys again and we'll go to Kentucky down under again because that was just, so I'm very thankful for that and it's really, really good to be here uh, with you guys. Uh, Let's pray and then I look forward to opening God's word together. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are the same, not just yesterday and today and forever, but you're the same in Bowling Green and San Diego and all around the world, and that you have people from every tribe and nation and tongue that that you will call to yourself and rescue and save and bring together for all eternity to worship you like we've worshipped you this morning. And for that, we just say thank you. Open our eyes to see you more clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of us, whether we're fully conscious of it or not, all of us have some vision. We might not be able to articulate it, but we have some vision of like what success looks like. We have some picture of what you might call the good life, and all of us have it. And the reality is that picture of the good life that we have is actually what guides and motivates every other decision that you make throughout the day. James Smith says to be human, is, it's to be animated and to be orientated towards some vision of the good life, some picture in your head of what it looks like to, for humans or for you to, to flourish. Uh, your vision of the good life, it's what helps you decide if a day was a good day or a bad day when you look back on it. You might not know, like, you might not have like a, a, a graph that you go through to check to decide if it's a good day, but there's just something intuitive that you have this vision that you may not be able to articulate of what the good life is, and when you look back on your day, that vision is what determines whether you think that was a good day or a bad day. That vision is what determines if you think a year is a successful year or a year was not successful. Ultimately, this morning, we're going to find that your definition of the good life actually impacts the way you see and understand who God is and what he's like. So before we go any further this morning, I just want each of us to take a few minutes and to try to think a little bit about what it is that we believe the good life is. What, how are we defining success? Uh, in order to help you, maybe I'll just ask some questions. What are you looking forward to? What do you find yourself daydreaming about whenever you get a free moment? What are your if-onlys? If only I had a better job. If only my kids would listen more. If only my kids loved Jesus. If only my kids, if only I could afford a better house. If only I could find a spouse. If only my marriage was happier. What are your if onlys? What are the things in your life that, if you lost, you're not sure if life would really be worth living any longer? If I lost one of my children, if I lost my spouse, if I lost my job, if if I lost my reputation, what is it that you just you you couldn't really imagine living without? Questions like this help give us a better understanding of what it is that we really believe the good life is. And remember, every single one of us has a vision of the good life, and it is that vision, whether you can articulate it or not, it is that vision that guides and propels every decision that you make throughout the day, which is why it is so important that we figure out what it is that we believe the good life is and what it is that the good life actually is and we try to try to lessen that gap as much as we can so to do that this morning we're going to look at psalm 73 psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm and one of the purposes of some of the wisdom psalms is to answer that question what is the good life the psalm begins in verse 1 the psalmist says surely god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart this is just like a truth that the psalmist has had like, just ingrained into him since he was a little kid. Some of you are probably familiar with that. Some of you have probably been to churches or, or maybe grown up in a church where somebody would say, God is good, and people would just say, all the time. It's just like ingrained in you from the time you are little, God is good. And the psalmist, like he he gets ready to pen this psalm and he's going to like, I'm going to start with what I've been told since I was a little kid. I'm going to start by just writing that down. Surely what I've been told since I was a kid is true. Surely God is good to his people. That's as far as the psalmist gets until he finds himself running into a problem. And here's what the problem that he runs into is. The psalmist can't seem to understand this. If God is really good to his people, then why aren't I living the good life? You ever feel that way? You ever wonder, if God is really good to his people, then why is my life so hard? If God is really good, why do you let my parents get a divorce? If God is really good, then why is he letting my children that I pray for since they're little babies rebel against him? If God is really good, why can't I afford just to pay my bills? If God is good, why'd my spouse leave me? If God is good, why am I dealing with this sickness, this This chronic illness that I can't escape. If God is good, why am I so sad? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so depressed? If God is really good, why is my life so hard? That's what the psalmist can't, he just can't seem to figure out. But that's not all that he's struggling with. Not only does he feel like his life is so hard, but he looks around and he sees these people that don't even believe in God and aren't even trying to be good, and their life seems so easy. Look at him, verse 2 through 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He goes on a 10-verse rant that ends in verse 2, where, in verse 12, where he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Do you want to know? I saved this one to, the, to now, but do you, do you want to know how you're defining the good life? i got a real easy one for you. You want to know how you're defining the good life? All you got to do is look at what it is that you envy. Whatever it is that you envy, that is how you are defining the good life. Here you can tell the psalmist has defined the good life as a life of comfort and riches and ease. That's how he's defined the good life. And you can tell it because that is what he is envying. And what the psalmist can't get his mind around is that if God is good to his people, and if the good life is a life of comfort and wealth and ease, then why are the wicked living it and not him? Now here's the crazy thing. For the psalmist, it's not really about comfort and wealth, and ease. That's not really what he's struggling with. That's what he believes the good life is, but that's not his deepest struggle. His deepest struggle is that he doesn't, He he's he's struggling to believe that God is good. That's what he's really struggling with. He wants to believe God is good. That's why he starts the psalm, Surely God is good to Israel. But he can't bring himself to actually believe it because he doesn't believe that he's living the good life. That's why in verse 13, he just, he writs his hands in the air and he just says, all in vain. It's all in vain that I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. You see his logic? Surely God is good to his people. If God is good to his people, to the pure in heart, then I will keep my heart pure so that God will be good to me. And if God is good to me, then he'll give me the good life. And so if I'm not living the good life, there can be only one explanation for that, and that is that God really isn't good to his people. I want you to take a moment and just consider his logic and try to understand where, because I mean... We kind of all know that there's got to be some kind of flaw somewhere because that does not that's not what you've probably heard all the other Sundays that you've been here. So, so But where is the flaw? Like, where is, where is the flaw? And what's crazy is the flaw is actually not in his logic. His logic is spot on. You see, I think it is impossible to actually believe that God is good if you don't believe that you're living the good life. It's impossible to believe that God is good to you if you don't believe that you're living the good life. I mean, think about it. How could you believe that God was really good to you if you knew that he could give you the good life, but for some reason he withheld it from you? That idea of God withholding from us, it's a temptation that broke our world in the first place, right, in the garden where God convinced Eve, that, where, where Satan convinced Eve that, that God was withholding from her. Remember the first thing he said? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? That's like the farthest thing in the world from what God actually said. But what's he trying to plant? He's trying to plant the seed into God doesn't want me to have good things. God is with- withholding the good life. Here's the crazy thing. If I stood at the door this morning when you came in, and I was like, hey, how you doing? You know, my name's Tim. I just got a quick question for you, doing a little survey. You think you're living the good life? You think you got it right here, right now? I mean, some of you might have said yes, but I I bet a lot of you would have come in and said, you know what, I can kind of see the good life. I'm not quite there. As soon as I graduate from college, I got, as soon as I get married, as soon as I, I got, I, we're, we're saving for a little house. And uh, f- For many of us, if we were asked, are you living the good life right now? Some of you had a hard morning, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just rough getting here. And, uh, and so if I would have said, you just laughed at me, you know what I'm saying? If I'm like, you living a good life? You'd be like, shoot, No. I'm pretty sure if you saw me this morning at my house, you'd know I wasn't living the good life. You wouldn't even ask that question. I mean, I mean, like, like a lot of us, when we think of the good life, we don't necessarily like think a picture of all life is in the dictionary next to it. You know, that's just not what we're we're necessarily thinking. And you wonder why you find it so hard to believe that God is good. You wonder why you wrestle and struggle to just really, in your heart, be able to affirm that God is good. I'll tell you why. You will never be able to truly believe that God is good if you do not believe that you are living a good life. You can't, you can't believe that a God could be good and could be in control and could have a good life that he could easily give you, but he keeps it from you. That's where the psalmist is at. What I'm trying to say is this. The problem was not with the psalmist's logic. The problem was with the way he was defining the good life. He missed defined the good life. And when you misdefine the good life, it leads you to envying others and doubting the goodness of God. That's where it leads. You see, as we read the second half of this psalm, what we find is that, ultimately, the psalmist's perspective changes. There's this turn. And it's crazy, because his circumstances don't change. Nothing in his circumstances change at all, but his perspective changes. Ultimately, what we're going to find is that his definition of the good life is what is going to change. Verse 17, "...until until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end." Standing there in the temple, all of a sudden the psalmist realized that he'd gotten this whole thing wrong. In that moment, he realized it's not the wicked that are live in the good life. Even though they are rich, and even though their life is easy, and even though they seem so comfortable, the psalmist suddenly realized they're on this slippery slope. And, and in a single moment, everything that they have is going to come crashing down. He says in verse 18 and 19, Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. That's that's not that's not what the good life leads to. I, I have this vision, this this imagination. I I want you guys to imagine it. It, it kind of, I think it'll help you understand what happens to the psalmist imagine you're back, you're young again, you know what I'm saying? And and you're in high school, you really want to go out to this party with your friends, and somebody maybe that you like is there, you're just really excited about it, you're putting all your hopes in it, and your parents tell you no. And you get so angry. And you sit there on Facebook, and you just see pictures of the party and of all your friends, and you just feel this envy. And inside, you just want so badly to be in that group. You want so badly to be with your friends in that car as they drive off to the party. And and then you wake up still angry, still envious in the morning. And you look at your cell phone, and there's all these notifications that your friends had been in a car accident, and everybody in that car had died. And you just feel sick. You just feel not just sad at the loss, but you just feel like you got kicked in the gut because you knew that all night long you wanted to be in that car. That's what the psalmist happened. He feels like he's been kicked in the gut because he realizes for the first 14 verses, I've been complaining, saying, I wish I was in that car. And now I see that dead car is on a slippery slope, swept utterly away by tears. He realizes, I have been envying people on their way to hell. And that's a sick thing. Verse 21 and 22, he's stunned, and he just says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist realizes his envy had been born out of ignorance, and it had turned him into a brute beast. Unfortunately, I've seen envy have that same effect in my own life a number of years ago we had this woman who was just traveling through town and she stopped at our friday bible study and she was friends with somebody in the church and I found out that she was a part of a brand new church plant, one year old, in Arizona. And so I just love church planting, and I think it's the sweetest thing. We were like five years old, so I thought, you know what, you know, we're, we're a little bit further down the road. I'd love to just hear, maybe she's going through a hard time, maybe it's like rough. I just like to, to pass on some wisdom, give her some advice. And so we're just talking, I'm asking her questions, I'm so excited about the fact that she's involved in this thing that I love church planting. And, so I said, hey, how many people are at the church plant? You know, I'm just trying to get a vision so I better know how to encourage her. And she says, ah, oh, you know, maybe 200 and some. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I wasn't really expecting that. Uh, so I thought of another good question before I got depressed and uh and and that question was like, "Oh, you must have taken like a big group from like the mother church, right?" Like I thought maybe they came from like a mega church. They brought like 150 people, you know? I was like, "Oh, you must have taken like a big group from the mega ch- or, uh, from the mother church." Sorry. From the, I, I didn't even mean that, but from the mother church, right? And 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 uh and uh, <laughs> and, uh and uh and she's like, "Oh, no, you know, 30, 40 people. We have just been growing like crazy ever since we started Here's the thing, like, I was so excited to talk to this lady. And uh, if I'm honest with you, I couldn't think of anything else to talk about at that point. Like, (laughs) I just felt like, okay, you know, we got coffee over there, you know. (laughs) I mean, I, I just, like, in my heart, it just, like, all the wind that was there and all the excitement that I had to talk about church planting, I was like, it just went away. And if I was like honest with you, I would, I would tell you like there was a part of me that was like sad, like I would have had a more enjoyable evening if they had 40 people in their church and we were talking about how hard it was. What I'm really trying to say is like I, I think I would have enjoyed the evening a lot more if like their church looked a little bit more like our church. And, uh, and all you have to do is say that out loud to know just how ignorant and brutish it is. I mean, it is so much better that they had started at 40 and grown to 200, and people were hearing the gospel, and God was doing amazing things. This was such good news. It was way better than if they took 150 people from a mother church. It was way better. But I was sad. You see, what happened is I had begun to, to misunderstand in the good life, right? I, I had begun to associate the good life with the fast-growing church. And what I was struggling with was why we worked so hard and tried to do everything we could And it just wasn't happening. And why they just seemed to just get it so easily. That's what happened to the psalmist. His misunderstanding of the good life led him to act in a way that was brutish and ignorant towards God. And the psalmist comes to grips with what he had done, and he realizes this. I am no better than the wicked. I've been envying. He looks down and he sees himself standing on the very same slippery slope that the wicked were standing in, and he realizes what I deserve is to be swept utterly away by tears just like them. That's what I deserve. It's crazy because it's it's almost so easy to see how he knows he deserves it because for the first 14 verses, he's been begging to have what they have. It's like he's been begging to be in that car, and then he wakes up and he realizes what happened to the car, and all he can think of is, I deserve to have been there. I'm no better than the people that were in that car because I wanted like crazy to be them. Remember verse 2? But as for me, my feet almost slipped. Why did his feet almost slip? Because he realizes I'm on the same slippery slope as the wicked. But for some reason, their feet slipped and they were swept utterly away by tears. But my feet didn't. They almost did, but they didn't. And he tells us why in verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with me. You hold me. By the right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Do you see what happened? Do you see what happened when the psalmist's feet began to slip? Do you see how he escaped, being destroyed in a moment for his ignorant and brutish distrust the psalmist looks up and he realizes i was slipping in the same group as them but you were continually with me and as my feet slipped you reached down and you held me with the right hand I said, the only difference between me and the wicked is your hand grabbed my hand and you would not let me go even when i was begging you to let me go I'd rather be with them. I kept saying it, I kept saying it, but you held me anyway and you wouldn't let me go. That's the only reason my feet didn't slip. That's the only reason my end isn't their end. And he just can't fathom it. And so he just he just he just he just erupts. Verse 25 and 26. or Whom have I in heaven but you? Uh, On earth there's nothing that I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh, they're going to fail me. But you, you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. That word portion, my favorite definition of the word portion, it's enough. You are my enough. I've been wanting their portion. I've been begging for their portion. And it's because I was blind and brutish and ignorant. And now I see that you are enough for me. You're my portion. I want you. And verse 2080 finally brings the psalm to a conclusion with this But as for me, it is good to be near God. NASB says, But as for me, the nearness. Of God is my good." Do you see what's happened? The psalmist's entire perspective has changed and now he finally understands what the good life is. At the beginning of the psalm there was a lot of things that he desired beside God, right? At the beginning of the psalm he seemed very concerned about his flesh and his heart, right? At the beginning of the psalm, he thought the wicked were the ones who were enjoying the good life. But all of that's changed now. Now he knows the truth. The wicked are sliding down towards an eternity of suffering. And the only thing that kept him from falling with them was that his God was beside him, that he held him by the hands. And finally he gets it, and he just sits there, and he brings it all to a conclusion, but saying, but as for me, I wanted to be like them. Not anymore, but as for me, the nearness of God is the good life. Not wealth, not comfort, not ease, not no pains until death. The nearness of God to know, to know that he's with Of course, that that does leave us with the question, how? How how could a holy God be good to such a brute beast as the psalmist? It it makes sense that God is good to the pure in heart, right? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That makes sense. But what did the psalmist say? He said, as for me, my heart was embittered. He doesn't have a pure heart. So if God is good to the pure in heart, then how is he good to the psalmist? How could the God, a holy God, give a brute beast with such a hard heart who begged him to let him go with the wicked? How could he give him the good life? You ever asked that question? You ever done something so brutish, so ignorant, That you just found yourself wondering how god could possibly still love you you ever done something you never imagined yourself ever doing and now you think i don't even like me anymore i don't even want to be around me anymore how could god really want to be with me why would he hold my hand The psalm is actually meant to leave you asking that question. For centuries, Psalm 73 leaves us and left God's people with this tension, wondering how on earth God would answer this question and alleviate this tension. How could a holy God be good to a brute beast? That's the question this psalm leaves you wondering. For centuries they waited until one day the sanctuary of God left heaven and took on flesh and came and dwelt among people. And The Bible tells us that unlike anyone else, Jesus was truly pure in heart. And that means that he deserved the good life. In fact, for all eternity, Jesus had been experiencing the good life. Remember how we're defining the good life? The right definition? The nearness of God. What does John 1.18 says? For all eternity, Jesus lived in the lap of the Father. He knew the good life. He deserved the good life. But he left the lap of the Father. And he took on flesh, and he came to earth, and he dwelt among the wicked. And you know what he saw? He saw the wicked seemingly getting away with everything. And you know what kind of life he lived? He lived a life that was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Foxes had a better life than him. They got holes. Birds got nests. He had nowhere to lay his head. Still, unlike the psalmist, He never complained. He refused to distrust in the goodness of God, and he never envied the wicked. Nevertheless, even though he never envied the wicked, and he had a pure heart, and he never distrusted God, nevertheless, Jesus found himself standing on a slippery slope. Within five days, he went from being hailed as the Messiah in the temple to being crucified naked outside the city on a cross. That is a fast fall. That is a slippery slope. And as he hung upon the cross, Jesus found himself slipping further and further down towards the dreadful wrath of God. And in the hour of his greatest trial, when he needed God the most, the one who had been by his side for all eternity, the one who had always held him up by the hand, let it go. He let it go, and Jesus found himself falling headlong into judgment. Make no mistake, on the cross, Jesus was swept utterly away by terrors. In a moment, he stopped experiencing the good life as the nearness of God forsook him, and he found himself enduring all by himself the judgment of the wicked. It's from this place that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, the tension of Psalm 73 is relieved as the innocent Son of God gives up the good life so that he might offer it to brute beasts like us. There at the cross, the Father lets go of the Son whose heart was pure. So that when you and I began to slip, he could reach down and hold on to us. There God turned his back on his only son so that he might be continually with us. There Jesus left the father's side so that he might bring us to it. Know for certain, know for certain God is good to his people. And he's good to his people all the time. He's good to us when we deserve it, and he's good to us when we don't. He's good to us when we succeed, and he's good to us when we fail. He's good to us when people love us and he's good to us when they leave us. He's good to us when our kids obey and when they rebel, when everybody when when when, when our reputation's flawless and when we fail and everyone sees it. He's good when your life is easy, and he's good when your life is hard. You see, the God who did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us all, that God is good to his people. And if you want to know what the good life is, if you really want to know what the good life is, then then mark this down. The good life is just to know that this God, who loves you so much, is continually with you. And he holds you up by the hand even when your feet begin to slip. And he guides you with his counsel even when you feel like you're lost. And after all is said and done, he will welcome you into his glory. That's the good life. I remember... First time I preached this psalm, Psalm 73, it was really early on in the church plan. It was about 12 years ago. And I still remember the season like it was, I could close my eyes and I could be there. We uh, we have a Bible study with homeless people on Friday nights at my house. And my wife and I have never been able to have children of our own. And uh, one day this, this woman uh, came and she Told us that she'd been raped by her ex-boyfriend, and uh, that she wanted to know if me and Abby would adopt her little baby, and and so of course we, we we told her yes, we would we'd love to, and we started going to all the doctor's appointments with her, and and you know we threw a threw a big like baby shower, and you can only imagine like a, a, a sweet church, you know like like your church, just how, how they would gather around. They gathered around my wife, and they were just so nice to her and just, like, lavished us with gifts and with celebration and with joy as we realized we might get something we never knew if we would ever get to experience, and that is to hold a baby and to raise a child. And so a few months later, the baby was born. Her name was Cynthia, and we went to the hospital, and we picked Cynthia up, and we brought her home. And she was... Uh, Addicted. I mean, she had drugs in her system from her mom, and uh, and so she was really, really difficult the first, you know, few weeks, and just struggled to sleep at night. And so I spent hours just holding her. And uh, and three weeks went by, and we grew very, very attached to this little girl. Fell in love with her, and uh, she was really, she. See, I can still picture her. And then one night, just out of the blue, we got a phone call. And um, it was the social worker. And she just said, you know what? Uh, I guess it turns out that uh, that the, the mom wasn't really raped by her ex-boyfriend. And uh, he actually just went out. And he got a new girlfriend. And she's a nurse. And she says she actually wants to raise the baby. So, uh, so tomorrow morning, if you don't mind, I'll give you his address. And, You don't mind, just uh, why don't you take Cynthia and take all of her stuff, everything that people have given you, and why don't you uh, bring it and give her back to her dad? I remember that night. I I held her all night, and I still remember waking up in the morning and I fed her her last bottle. I'm a sentimental person, so I I took it, I saved it, I I washed it out, and it's it's on the bookshelf right next to my desk still. and we packed up everything the people gave us for her because we wanted her to have it for certain. And we filled the van. And then we put her in the van and we drove to her dad's house. And I got out and I held her. And the dad came and he emptied out the van. And then finally it was empty. And uh, And so the last thing we did was we handed little baby Cynthia to her dad, and and then I held my wife's hand, and we walked back out to the van, and we sat down, and we just we couldn't we couldn't move. We just cried, sat there. It, it was crazy, cause such a little such a little girl, and yet the silence and the emptiness of that van was like. It was was more than I had expected. And I remember, I just preached this psalm a couple, maybe a week before. And after we cried for a while, I just took my wife's hand, and I, I said, beautiful. And I looked her in the eye, and I said, listen. I said, you and me. I said, you and me right now, right here. We have the good life. The nearness of God. He's here with us in this van. No Cynthia, but, but our God is here and He's holding us by the hand. And, and, uh, and that's the good life. God taught me that day. He taught me that the good life is not having a baby, the good life is not having a nice family, it's not having a growing church alone in that van with red eyes and a broken heart, I realized that the good life is just to know that you're not alone in that van with red eyes and a broken heart. It's just to know that he's continually with you, and that when you feel like you're about to slip and fall, he's holding your hand, and when you feel lost and dark and confused and sad, he's guiding you with his counsel and when you feel like the brokenness of this world is just too much and you don't know how you're going to make it you can remember that one day he will welcome you into his glory and all that is lost will be restored and you will look him in the face and those tears that won't stop he will he will lift your chin and he'll say your name and he'll wipe them away and they will be no more Because everything that ever made you cry will be no more. And everything you lost will be restored. And you'll look at him and you'll know he's worth it, he's enough. Then you will say, no longer by faith, but by sight, whom am I in heaven, but but you, Jesus said, on earth, all those things I cried about, they're nothing compared to what I am beholding right now. Now I see it all came from you. It was all in your heart. It was all spoken out by your word. You held it together as long as I needed it, and you took it away when I needed it no longer. It's always been you, it's always come from you. You've always been enough. You've always loved me. You've always been for me. You've always been with me. You, 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 you gave your life on the cross so that instead of slipping to my death with the wicked, you could pull me up to yourself and wipe my tears away. To good lives just to know that I don't have to wait till heaven to be with you, because you're continually with me here. So before we get any further, In our lives, let's just take some time this morning and let's just make sure that we rightly understand the good life. Sometimes it helps me to just think, what is it that my Savior shed his blood on the cross for? That helps me because I realize he didn't die on the cross so that I could have a baby. He didn't die and shed his blood on the cross so I could have a bigger house or a better job or more obedient kids or a happier marriage, as good as all those things are. My Savior didn't give up the good life for that. He gave up the good life so that he could bring me to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. Suffering so that he could bring me to God and offer and invite me into the good life that he had enjoyed for all eternity. That's what he died for. Not comfort or ease or a house or a family or the size of your church or people like you or not. That's the the good news is this. You can leave here this morning, however you came. And whatever you're going to, you can leave here with a good life. And you can leave here with a good life that nothing can take away from you, and nothing can separate you from. A good life that is completely independent of your circumstances and cannot be taken away or thwarted, not by your own failures or by anybody else. And so I pray that you will leave here, knowing and remembering that your God is continually with you, that when you feel yourself slipping, he's there holding you up by the right hand, that when you feel confused and anxious and lost he guides you with his counsel and that when all is said and done the end is going to be you welcomed in to his glory to experience the good life not by faith but by sight for all eternity and so i pray that each of us this morning that When we find ourselves tempted, we can just say with the psalmist, but as for me, this world is like every advertisement and every commercial and every voice you ever hear, it's just they're telling you a different definition of the good life. And you just stand up and you say, but as for me, but as for me, the nearness of God, that's the good life. That's the good life. Amen? Dear Jesus, to think that after all that we've done, and even after all the times we've envied the wicked and and wanted what they had more than what you offer, that, that even after all of that, you hold us by the right hand and you're continually with us never leave us, you never forsake us, you guide us, you look forward to welcoming us into your glory, Lord, that we as a people could just have branded on our minds the good life, it's just to be with you, to know that you are our portion, our enough, both now and forever. Thank you. Thank you for enduring the judgment of the wicked so that you could give us the good life that you and you alone deserve. Thank you. Please, please, when our minds wander and when our definitions stray, pull us back, keep us from slipping. Bring us into your sanctuary and remind us of the good life that we have through you. In Jesus' name, amen.